In episode 40 of Mosin at Large, if you were offered sight tomorrow, would you take it? Some tips for those thinking about switching to Android. Sonos has a big week coming up, and we tell funny stories about the pets or guide dogs in our lives. All this and much more right here. Mosin at Large Podcast. You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email, or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736, and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. I hope you've had a great week. It has been an uneventful week coronavirus-wise for us here in New Zealand. We have no more cases than when I last talked to you on Mosin at Large. Not one single new case in the entire country in the last week. And we just have this one person who hasn't obviously been identified who has coronavirus in the whole country now. Everybody else who had it has recovered. And so we're looking to taking our levels down in the next few days, going to alert level one. And what that will mean is the end of the requirement to do social distancing. Large concerts and sporting events will be back without any restrictions, although just to be on the safe side, there will be uh, contact tracing and the requirement to you know make make a note of where you've been in those large gatherings. But we are really just about back to normal. There are very severe border restrictions because the only way this is working is to make sure that everybody who comes into the country quarantines for 14 days, which is the incubation period. I have over the week received quite a few articles from people who are trying to persuade me, as they say in the north of England, one way or t'other, one way or t'other about the whole mask debate. And there was a really interesting article from Ars Technica that I read and also Angus McKinnon sent it to me. So thank you, Angus. And I'm pretty sure the the verdict is in on this one, that the masks are proven to be effective. And even in the UK, where just some weeks ago, they were saying the science is ambiguous at best and we, you know, we're not going to force masks on people. And, you know, and, and they are now saying if you go on public transport, as of very shortly in England, you are required to wear a mask. And I think that's right. One of the big studies on which New Zealand was basing its we neither recommend nor require that you wear a mask on public transport et al. One of those big studies has actually been withdrawn for bad science. This is one of the really complicated things, isn't it? You sort of rely on the scientists. You expect them to give you the skinny. And then sometimes the science is just flat out wrong. And you find that you have to rethink 
So one of those key studies has been withdrawn, and I think that there's no doubt that what those masks do is protect others from you. So they don't protect you necessarily from other people, but if you are incubating, you're doing everybody a favor by wearing a mask. I think that's pretty clear. And although you know we can be pretty pleased with ourselves in New Zealand, given that we are far ahead because we locked down and we locked down really hard, really early, I think, to be honest, we made a mistake there and we dodged a bullet purely because of how effective our other lockdown measures were. We have been talking a lot about technology on this show lately, and I don't mind that. I've worked in technology, as many people know, even designed a few products and still have a fascination for it. But this show was always going to be more about technology. And if you go all the way back to Mosin at Large episode one, I do make that clear. So to that end, I wanted to raise something a bit different. And it is something that I have asked before on various talk shows that I've done on Mushroom FM. And I'm always fascinated by the answers that we get back. This by far, this Mosin at Large audience is the largest audience that I've ever asked this question to. So I hope we will get many responses and that there'll be a diversity of opinions on this important question. Let me preface my question with the article that inspired me to raise this question again. Almost as sensitive as real human eyes, a recent paper in Nature published the trials of a bionic eye developed by a team of robotic engineers that could restore sight to an estimated 285 million blind people. Possibly available as early as five years from now, the ECI, short for electrochemical eye, is inspired by the human retina, which is one of the most sensitive tissues we possess, providing up to 80% of all information about our surroundings. The visual prosthetic, developed by engineers from Hong Kong and the United States, offers hope to the hundreds of millions of people around the world that have lost their ability to see due to things like age-related macular degeneration and BB gun accidents. That's quite random. The bionic eye mimics the domed shape of the human retina, which sharpens the focus and reduces the spread of light as it passes through 10 million photoreceptive cells per square centimetre. These natural characteristics have so far been impossible to replicate with artificial materials. Now, I read a lot of news about blindness. I have various alerts set up that deliver me news about blindness-related issues every week. It's a great tool for this show, for example. So I see a lot of stories like this, although this one seems quite remarkable in terms of what it is promising to do. But there are lots of stories that talk about curing blindness, giving hope to blind people, as if all of us just sit around waiting for a cure. And I have to say, I would make a distinction between those who become blind at some point after birth and those of us who've been blind since birth or so early that we don't remember anything different. Because I relate to this as somebody with a degenerative hearing impairment. You know, I remember what it was like to hear fully and I know how frustrating it can be not to hear fully. And I would give anything almost to have my hearing back. I'm sure that when you have had sight, and it is such a dominant sense, many people would be inclined to say, look, if there was some sort of prosthetic or some sort of cure surgery available, then they would take it. I would not. I've been totally blind since birth. And for me, I'm perfectly happy that way. 
Blindness hasn't stopped me from doing anything in my life that I wanted to do, other perhaps than drive a car, and mate, I'm going to be in the queue when my self-driving car becomes available. I cannot wait to get into my first self-driving car that I own. So my question for you is, if you were offered sight tomorrow, assuming you're totally blind at the moment, would you take it? Why or why not? It would be helpful to understand the circumstances behind your blindness. In other words, whether you've been blind since birth, whether you acquired blindness later in life at some point so that you still have a visual memory. And that's the big difference, you see. I'm in my 50s now and I don't have a visual memory. So what concerns me is that if I were to get a prosthetic like this that suddenly gave me sight, and the article does go on to say actually, that this prosthetic does have the potential to give people better sight than sighted people, which is quite an extraordinary position to be in. If I suddenly had that sight, I wouldn't know what to do with all the data. I would actually need rehabilitation. So there you go. There's a tip. Get yourself set up for rehabilitation of newly sighted people, because if these things come to fruition, and eventually they will, There's going to be a whole new industry for the rehabilitation of newly sighted people because you're just going to be bombarded with all of this data and it's going to come streaming in and your brain's not going to know what to do with it. I mean, you're not just going to suddenly get sight switched on tomorrow if you've been totally blind since birth and see a cat passing by and your brain says to you, that's a cat. You won't know it's a cat. I mean, you'd need to just be trained in the most basic of things. You'd have to be trained about what color looks like. So for someone congenitally blind, I think it probably is a more complex question. But no matter what circumstances caused you to have a vision impairment, I would like to know if you would take this One of the things that I think would make a really good sort of science fiction novel or potentially some sort of philosophical work of fiction would be the pressure that might be placed on blind people who choose to remain blind, who are comfortable with their lot, don't see the need to have to learn about all of this visual data at the time of life that they're at, and whether there might be public policy pressure brought to bear on blind people in that situation. I think this is something that consumer organizations like NFB and ACB and uh, Blind Citizens Australia in Australia are going to have to think about at some point. If there is a, quote, cure, unquote, for blindness, and I don't perceive my blindness as being something that needs to be cured. It's just a characteristic of mine, one of many. But if blindness can be cured, and you choose not to take it because you're concerned about the repercussions and the time it will take to rehabilitate, it could be that public policymakers will say, well, if you've got a choice and you've opted not to make that choice, then we don't have to pay you benefits. We don't have to compensate for the costs of your blindness because you've chosen this condition. And of course, there are also questions about what this means for accessibility. You will potentially have people pressuring blind people and others with impairments as this technology spreads to say, look, forget about accessibility, just become like us. Be really interested in your thoughts. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com and the number, of course, in the United States, 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. 
Some comments on the bionic eye question. Pam Quinn in sunny Iowa says, Hi, Jonathan, and all, having been blind since birth, I've never longed for anything to be different as far as sight is concerned. The senses that we have, though, are such wonderful gifts, and if we were to try to explain what any one of them was like to someone, there just aren't any words that would convey or do them justice. So I imagine that the same would be true for sight, And for that reason, if I had a chance to try out the bionic eye, maybe I'd give it a shot. It could be rather frightening, though, and one of my professors told me a long time ago that if someone who has never seen were to suddenly have sight, they would require more training and rehab than a sighted person who became blind would. The sensory overload would be quite an adjustment at first. I really wonder how this bionic eye has or can even come to the experience of actual sight. I say this because I've heard simulations of what it would sound like to have a cochlear implant, and wow, it sounds like they have a long way to go for improving those, and I hope I never need one. I'm thankful that they're available, though, and I have a friend who is getting one today, in fact. But back to that bionic eye, I wonder how they will decide who will get them. Well, I mean, I imagine good old money will play a bit of a factor, at least in the beginning. Thank you, Pam. And this is a really big difference between remediating sight and remediating hearing that a lot of people who are sighted and don't have a hearing impairment do not get. When you wear hearing aids, it is nothing like, or for that matter, a cochlear implant, which is the next step up, it's nothing like having your hearing corrected in the same way that glasses correct your vision. So if you're able to get a prescription for glasses and they essentially give you 20-20 vision back, your sight is every bit as good with your glasses on than had you not been wearing glasses and you were born with 20-20 vision or you currently had 20-20 vision. Hearing's not like that. So this bionic eye, if they get it right, it does have the potential, as we heard in the article, to actually even be better than standard human sight. I mean, we're a long way there, but the potential does exist. More tweets. This one from Shane Jackson, who says, I absolutely agree with you here. Oh, that's nice. At almost 47 years old, I do not want something I have never had. I've been blind since birth, and it's who I am. Holger is uh, tweeting in and says, I was sighted, and if it was a clone eye, I would do it. If I use that, it would be going from analog to digital. I suppose it would be in some respects. And Kathy Blackburn in Austin, Texas, says, I'm 70. I don't think I'd know what to do either if I regained vision. Remember, there was a book by Oliver Sacks that covered this. And Kathy also continues as the tweet stream comes in. I'd have to research which book it was. This is the Oliver Sacks she refers to. I remember that the patient still couldn't distinguish visual between cat and a dog. He had to touch one to find out what it was. And I guess you would have to. Maybe they'd have to. uh, You know how sometimes people with a bit of usable sight get blindfolded as what some people say is a legitimate rehabilitative technique. It could be that you'll be tied with your hands behind your back when you go into sighted rehabilitation, so you don't cheat by feeling it to confirm what it is that you think you're seeing. There you go. There was a movie, and it was possibly based on a book called At First Sight. That was an interesting one. I remember seeing that movie. You should look it up if you haven't seen the movie, and I think that possibly was originally based on a book. Email coming in from Petra 
She says, good morning, Jonathan. I would choose to be able to see. I could still use all my blindness skills, but would be able to see my daughter, family members, all the colors of the rainbow and the world. And then she says, if the masks are so good at preventing, why quarantine everyone coming into New Zealand? Just make them wear a mask. Well, I think our strategy is speaking for itself, Petra. Zero new cases for a very long time and only one person in the whole country. The masks offer a small degree of protection. This is one of the arguments that some of the scientists offer about not doing the mask thing, because they say it gives you an overly false impression of how much protection you're actually receiving. Plus, there's the enforcement thing. I mean, when you are quietly locked up, <laughs> and and it's not like you're in a prison or anything. They're locking people up. They're quarantining people in hotels and leaving delicious five-course meals at the door. Well, I don't know whether it's quite a five-course meal, but yeah, you know, it's a pretty nice experience. So you're, you're locked away in quite nice conditions. There's no question then that you are obeying the rules, right? Because you are quarantined and you're very strictly supervised. And the thing is, I mean, it works. It absolutely works. I think there are many countries in the world that would just be so uh, desirous of the uh, of the current experience that we have. So we certainly won't be changing that policy. And also keep in mind that New Zealand is used to this because we have to keep out a lot of pests and diseases. You know, we've never had rabies in this country, for example, a bunch of other things. We are used to we've, we've got a pretty robust quarantine infrastructure here for making sure that those nasties stay out. And so COVID-19 has just added to that list of things that we don't have here, at least except for one person who will soon be cured, and we don't want it here. A bit of Android talk today. Here's Anil, and he says, Hi, Jonathan. Over the past three or four Mosin at Large episodes, people are really showing an interest in Android devices after you mentioned that Android 11's TalkBack is getting multi-finger gesture support. Hence, as an Android user for two years, here are my few points to be considered before going to Android. 1. There are many smartphone brands in the Android ecosystem. I would always recommend going with smartphones that are Android 1 supported or smartphones made by Google. That way, you're going to get the best of Android accessibility support as Android 1 smartphones have a clean stock UI. That's user interface. You can choose Android One smartphones of any brand. Note, Nokia smartphones support Android One. Yeah, and actually I've heard some quite nice things about those Nokia Android phones. Note two, Google's smartphones are pricey. Android One is still a bit cheaper. Two, many brands say that their smartphone custom UI is fully accessible with TalkBack, but it is 50-50, so do not go for them. There you go, you've been told. Three, if you are coming from iOS and want to try Samsung's Galaxy lineup, thinking that their own screen reader supports multi-finger gestures, it has even bigger bugs and problems, I would say, not worth it. Getting used to TalkBack's Angular gestures is much easier. Four, currently all Android smartphones running Android version 9 or higher have a bug in the YouTube app where you can't post comments because the send comment button is not accessible with a screen reader. Note, the send comments button bug is present with Samsung screen reader too. Five, the Braille screen input 
is only available currently in screen away mode in Google Talkback. That's important to know. I use Tabletop almost exclusively, so that would be a really big deal for me. Six, on some Android phones, when you encounter WhatsApp groups with long names, the Google TTS might stop speaking, ranging from a few seconds to a minute or two. Seven, the talkback shortcuts are much easier to use than voiceover when you get used to the angular gestures. Well, that's a big... (laughs) I hope these pointers help people who are wanting to try out Android. Other Android users are welcome to expand this list of points. Thank you very much for that, Anil. I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And and even though we don't agree on the angular gestures, and I mean, that's just a, a personal preference thing. There are many things that I find easy to do that other people don't. And this is one of those cases where I just cannot get on with those angular gestures at all. And I'm so grateful that in the next little while, it'll be, as I say, a moot point. Now, from India, we go to Sweden and hear from Heinrich on a similar subject. And he says, hi there. First of all, thanks for a great podcast. Well, thank you so much for listening. There'd be no point without that. Since a month ago, I converted to the other side. Oh, my goodness. He surrendered to the force. After seven years, completely lost in Apple's ecosystem. I need the reverb. Lost in Apple's ecosystem. I finally bought an Android phone, and my choice was a OnePlus 8 Pro. I love it. And even though we haven't got Android 11 yet with multi-gestures for talkback, I find this phone very accessible after some modifications and settings. There are several things I find better than any iPhone, like Google Assistant, far better than Siri. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it would be really, really hard for anybody to make a case that Google Assistant isn't eating Siri's lunch. I completely agree with that. And he continues... And this phone behavior is very much like a PC when it comes to handling document reading and editing with an external physical Bluetooth keyboard. Yes, I can concur with that, actually. It's, that's absolutely true. It's very similar. He says, I can navigate and edit text just as if I did it on my computer. That's not the case with an iPhone. No, it isn't. If, you, if you're coming from a Mac, you'd be really at home, I guess, editing text on an iPhone. And I guess I've just trained myself over the years to uh, cope with that, which just goes to show that the the same is probably true of angular gestures. I mean, if an Android phone is all you have, you will eventually get to grips, I guess. The very long battery life, he continues, is another thing I like. Even if I use this phone a lot, a fully charged battery lasts for three days. And speaking of charging... I heard that you like the Apple's Quick Charge 18-watt USB adapter charger, which charges your iPhone fully in two hours. This OnePlus is fully charged from 0 to 100% in one hour. Heinrich goes on to say it's a 30-watt charger. Dude, no wonder it's going so quickly. And the phone does get quite warm, so he's found another charger that is a little less aggressive, but still charges the phone relatively quickly. Thank you so much. I have heard good things. You know, I read a lot about these devices and the OnePlus phones have always been innovative and cool. I remember my son Richard was sort of lusting after a OnePlus One, the first one that came out. And he's the only one in our family that is very steeped in the Android ecosystem, loves it, 
and has no desire to change. So thank you for that. I really appreciate these Android perspectives coming in. Mosin at Large Podcast. Gary O'Donoghue, cheeky boy. He says, uh, if you were to go for a bionic eye, what color would you go for? Rose gold? Space gray? Yeah, it could be the latest Apple thing. And I, yeah, that's what it would be called. Eyeball from Apple. The new eyeball from Apple restores your vision. Imagine having to switch your eyeballs off and back on again because, you know, it needs a software update or it's locked up or uh, tremendous stuff. Now, Aaron he says that he's been blind since birth and he'd try it only because he's just curious. He'd like to see what it's like. And I get that, actually, although I think you'd have a really trippy experience being overwhelmed by everything. And the other thing, too, is I'm pretty sure it would be a one-way trip. I mean, it would involve quite substantial surgery to get this thing in. So I think it'd be quite tricky to get it out of you again. I don't think they'd be keen to do it just so you can see what it's like and also to really benefit from it. You would, as I say, I believe, have to go through quite a lot of rehabilitation to make any sense of the data. Caroline Taves, welcome to you in sunny Winnipeg. And she says that all of this talk reminds her, of course, of the Robert J. Sawyer WWW trilogy. That is such a wonderful read. And she says that she just had eye surgery that resulted in the removal of an eye. And she's adjusting to the limited vision that she has with her one eye. So she's finding this very interesting. Good to receive email from Bev Powell. And he says, hi, Jonathan, I've listened to your podcast for a while and find them very interesting and informative. That's kind of you. Thank you. He says, I'm a 78 year old male with RP. I live in southern Ontario, Canada. As my vision deteriorated, my light sensitivity became worse to the point that I was constantly wearing sunglasses. After a while, I was unable to find sunglasses that were dark enough. My wife, Betty, came up with a solution which works for me. We purchase the darkest wraparound glasses that we can find. Using black acrylic craft paint, Betty paints the inside of the lenses with two to three coats of the paint. The wraparound factor is important as the glasses block light from entering from the sides. I can now be outside in the brightest of days and the light doesn't bother me. In fact, I see nothing. Hope this works for others with similar issues. Thank you so much for sharing that, Bev. It's really cool when people chime in with their own hints and tips about things. And obviously, as someone who is totally blind and doesn't even have light perception, blind as a bat, I think the expression is, uh, that's something that I'm just not qualified to comment on. So I really appreciate you sharing that. I've no doubt it could be of use to others in a similar position. If you've been listening regularly to Mosin at Large, you will have heard that I'm really enjoying using the Microsoft Edge browser. This is the new version on Windows that is based on the Chromium engine. And we are seeing all this cooperation between Google and Microsoft to build a really robust and highly accessible browser engine. I don't really see any disadvantage in using Edge over Chrome, actually. You still get the great experience. You get the excellent browsing engine. Edge is scoring very highly in terms of rendering accessible content, so that's good to see. It will sync across your Windows devices if you are logged into the same Microsoft account. And there's also a Microsoft Edge for your iOS and Android device. And I am suspecting that you will be able to set Microsoft Edge as your default browser in iOS 14 
if you want to. So if you're not completely all in with the Apple ecosystem, in other words, if you have an iPhone and Windows rather than an iPhone and the Mac, then having Edge as your default browser, if that's possible in iOS 14, makes a lot of sense. So why would you use Microsoft Edge instead of Google Chrome? Well, some people who've done some analysis on CPU use suggest that Microsoft Edge is gentler on the CPU, gentler on your battery life. And that's always a good thing when you're out and about and you can conserve some battery life. Others suggest that Edge renders content a little faster than Google Chrome does. And I guess for me, the clincher is I just feel happier about doing business with Microsoft than I do with Google who have, at least at uh, different times in the past, displayed a bit of a cavalier attitude toward user privacy and data. Remember, there's so much free stuff in Google land because you are the product. I just feel happier, a little safer, I guess, a little more comfortable using Microsoft stuff. And Edge really does the job. They've done a fine job with accessibility. The reason why I tell you all this now is that the time has come. If you wanted to get Microsoft Edge in the past, you would have to go and get it from the Microsoft website. It was a deliberate act, as it were. Now the new Microsoft Edge is starting to be pushed via Windows Update. And that means that you will find that that clunky old Microsoft Edge, I presume it disappears once the Windows update has taken place and you get the nice shiny new Microsoft Edge instead, which is a gazillion times better than the thing they used to call Edge. So if you find that you get the new Microsoft Edge in Windows update, take it for a spin and I would be very interested to know how you're enjoying it or not. Hi, Jonathan. It's Megan. Megan. I just wanted to let you know that the YouTube update has been released and the rewind bug is fixed. Yes, and I don't like to say I told you so. Thank you for telling us about that, Megan, but I told you so. I told you. So when they fix this, and Gary is actually lamenting this on Twitter as we speak live here on Mosin at Large. He's talking about the problem with YouTube rewinding and fast-forwarding. That was fixed in now the the update before the current one. I think they just pushed another update in the weekend. But about a week ago, they came out with this new update for YouTube. And it was just some nebulous nonsense, like we fix the tube that bring you, you know, that stupid stuff. They have about three little messages that they put on Rotate. Hello, Jonathan. It's Grace here. Hope that you're well. Just to let you know the good news that we have applied for a reject guide dog and I feel excited because uh, the lady that deals with getting them home, she phoned me today and she said it could be soon. She said, uh, depending when the training centres start opening again. Um, so we're going to get a, a young dog from a year up till three years old. And we're going to get a wee girl this time. So that'll be lovely. That is exciting news, Grace. And for those who don't know, because Grace has been calling into the Mosin explosion for a while now, their dog, Ben, unfortunately died. He was quite elderly, Ben, but he died a wee while ago now. And that's always tragic, no matter what the age, when you've got a, a, a canine companion and you've had them for that long, any pet, really, and they eventually die. It is a sad thing. I'm surprised to hear that it's not going to take too long to get a reject guide dog because I would have thought they would have been in huge demand you know but this does bring to mind a couple of stories you know while we try and focus on things beyond technology as well as all keeping the technology content and stuff I was reminded of a story that my family doctor when I was a kid used to tell 
We all used to go to Dr. Young. I'm the youngest of five kids, and we all used to go to Dr. Young when we had our various ailments, and uh, he was even around when we were thinking of starting a family. So, you know, he's one of those classic family doctors. And you used to have to wait in the waiting room in the surgery for ages. You know, if you had a 3.45 appointment, you would be lucky to see him by, say, 4.30. And the reason for that was that when you eventually got in there, he'd always have a good chin wag with you, really good long chat, and it would just go on forever. It was all very entertaining, but you would get your ailment cured with a bit of luck. Anyway, Dr. Young was very fond of telling a story about how there was a working guide dog, and one day the owner was doing a bit of an inspection, you know, just patting the dog, and there was this tumour on the dog's stomach. And... This was pretty traumatizing, and so he obviously called the guide dog services and then went to the vet, and they thought this was such a big tumor on this dog that its days were unfortunately very numbered. So they retired the guide dog and gave the person a new dog, and they needed to find a home for this dog to see out its short number of remaining days with this tumor. And Dr. Young adopted the dog, and I guess because doctors do have to unfortunately deal with death, you know, they kind of thought, well, we will be able to cope to some degree. It'll be sad, but we'll cope when this dog eventually dies, which won't be too long. So they got the dog home and the dog, even though it had this tumor, was quite frisky and it bounded about and was quite happy just being a dog, you know, frolicking in the meadows or whatever the equivalent is. And they kept wondering, when is this going to catch up with this poor dog? When is the tumour unfortunately going to take its toll? But the dog remained frisky for some months. And then one day it felt like the end was coming because the dog started developing this kind of cough and clearly was in some degree of discomfort. And they thought, oh, gosh, this is terrible. This is it. The end is coming. And the dog's cough got worse and worse. And finally, the dog coughed up half a tennis ball. And that was the tumour. And the dog went on to live a long and happy life. Isn't that a nice happy ever after story? And I'm sure that we all have some stories if we've had pets in our lives or guide dogs that we'd like to tell. Because these animals do do some crazy things and have a lot of personality. I worked with a guide dog in the 1990s and into the early part of this century. And she was a black lab and her name was Pearl. And at the time, I was managing government relations for the Foundation for the Blind here in New Zealand. So I had quite a prominent role. And they picked Pearl, I think, quite carefully. She looked really great and she was a very good worker. She didn't disgrace me too many times in Parliament and places that I had to go, although she did have epilepsy. It was a really terrible thing. I will never forget this. I'll never forget being at home on my own. And I could hear this very strange clattering on the floor. And Pearl had gone into the bathroom, was flat on her back having a seizure. And she's a black lab, or she was a black lab. I thought she might have been choking on something. And I tried to clear her airway. She growled and she bit. I mean, it was a very, very horrifying thing. And I remember calling my then wife and saying, I think Pearl's dying. And she came rushing home. After that, that's what she would do. If she was going to have a seizure, she would go to somewhere where the floor was cold, a hard, cold floor, and have her seizure. And it was it was awful. And they obviously offered 
to give me another dog. And I said, I just can't give her up. We medicated the issue. But the consequence of medicating the issue was that it made her really ravenous. So it brought to the fore all of her black lab tendencies. But I just couldn't give her up. But we had some great adventures. And I remember that I was doing a campaign at one stage to change the legislation, which was ambiguous about whether it was okay for a blind person to serve on a jury or not. It was up to interpretation. And I wanted it absolutely unambiguous that blindness in and of itself was not a reason to stop you from being on a jury. So the media people came along, the TV people, and we went to the court and they said, we'd like to get this video of you for this news piece, walking up into the courtroom and striding up to the jury box and then taking a seat in the jury box. And I said, all right, don't roll the camera. Let me just do this a couple of times and show Pearl what it is that we're trying to do. And so we did it a couple of times. She found the jury box. I praised her most vociferously for finding the box. And I said to the camera guy, okay, I think we're ready to do this now. You can roll the camera. So we did it probably a third or fourth time by the stage when the camera was rolling. But, you know, Pearl was a very media savvy dog. So... She strode into the high court again, and we were doing this lovely, you know, walking along. I was saying, good girl, this is great. But then she walked right past the jury box, right up to the camera, and gave the cameraman a big lick because she knew that the camera was on. Sometimes we'd go to concerts, and they were classical music concerts, and the orchestra would start coming out, or the conductor would come out or something, and... People would start applauding. And she was so used to me being applauded on for presentations and things that whenever people applauded, she would get up thinking, you know, it's our turn now, it's our turn, we're going to (laughs) go. Now, some people are dog people and some people are cat people. Jane Jordan is writing in and she says, uh, both of our cats, they're called Blake and Talia, or is it Talia, are on my naughty list for the moment. Oh, dear, I wouldn't want to be on your naughty list, Jane. When the weather is nice, like it is as I write this, they like to get in one of the windows. Sometimes they'll share nicely, but at other times they play, in quotes. This time, Blake was in the window enjoying the sun and Talia was outside it. Blake started smacking Talia and Talia smacked her back. Me, having no idea what was going on, stuck my hand into pet Blake to calm her. Oh, Blake's a her. Okay. Not only did the little brat hiss at me, she clawed me on my hand and right in a vein. I immediately bled some and the kitties have avoided me since. I hope by the time this gets on the air, we've made up. But ah, I have now a multicolored bruise between my third and fourth knuckle. I may be annoyed, but I admit I am owned by my cats. Well, Jane, you wouldn't like a guy here, a sort of wannabe politician, a very successful businessman called Gareth Morgan. And he's been campaigning here in New Zealand saying cats are vermin. They destroy valuable wildlife and they should be banned. He's quite vociferous about it. And we actually have a political reporter who has a cat now called Gareth Morgan (laughs) in spite Over to the UK we go uh, on the subject, and hi, Jonathan, it's Dan from the UK. I love your weekly show and podcast. I am a first-time emailer. Well, welcome, Dan. 
Because, of course, if people didn't email or call in, where would we be, eh? Where would we be? Nothing but waffle from me. Yuck. Anyway, so I'll continue with your email. I've got a story about my first ever guide dog that I would like to share. I got my guide dog, Reggie, almost three years ago. Guide dogs in the UK put us up in a hotel for an intense two-week training course. This included very early mornings, getting up every day at around 6am to spend our dogs. Was that what you call it? Spend our dogs? That's an interesting way to... It's, it's funny the way that people talk about getting their dogs to go to the toilet. Here we have busy, busy. You give the busy, busy command and your dog's supposed to do its business. Although if you've got a Mac, that could be a real problem because Safari says busy, busy, busy so often. Your Mac might be telling your guide dog to poop inside. I wonder if you could sue Apple for that. Anyway, yeah, spend our dogs getting everything ready and starting the daily training. As I wasn't that used to the early mornings, I got into the habit still being half asleep, every morning leaving my keycard in my hotel room. Every morning I had to trudge with Reggie, my guide dog, to the reception to ask them to let me back into the room to collect my card. After around my fourth or fifth day on the trot of doing this, I walked once again back up to reception. The receptionist took one look at me and said, You've lost your keycard again, ain't you? Come with me. I smiled and asked Reggie Guide Dog to follow the man, and we went down the corridor. He then found what I thought was my room and then let me in. It's still being early in the morning, around 6.30. I thought I'd go back to bed for a quick five minutes nap. Me and Reggie walked up to the bed, and that's when a random man shot up out of his bed and shouted, Get out! This isn't your room. Me and Reggie then had to walk very embarrassed back out of this man's room. I don't think I will get this embarrassing but hilarious moment that I shared with my first ever guide dog out of my head. On the point of getting sight back, I agree. I wouldn't necessarily want to be able to see again. I have adjusted to the loss and I have to say it kind of defines who I am. I live an upbeat, happy life, am totally comfortable with the fact that I have no sight. I also have some mobility issues with a dropped foot and numbness in the feet. If the option ever arises to heal the spinal cord injury, it wouldn't take me a second to jump at the chance. Also, I heard that you have a rowing machine, Jonathan. Would you be able to share where you got yours from? Also, I'd appreciate any listeners that use any accessible gym equipment like exercise bikes, etc., and how you get on with them. I am very much enjoying closing the rings and doing workouts with my Apple Watch Series number 4. Thank you, Dan. I do have a rowing machine, and I got it from a company in New Zealand called Number One Fitness, which is probably no help to you. I'm a big fan of the rowing machine because it gives you cardio, but it also does strength training at the same time. This is a pretty portable rowing machine. I mean, you could easily put it in your living room and use it while you are watching the TV or listening to Mosin at Large or something like that. It's one of those magnetic ones, so it doesn't have any kind of big wheel. It's not 
It's not mechanical, but I like it. It gives me enough resistance, and I feel like I've had a really good workout when I've used it, and there is a dedicated rowing machine workout on the Apple Watch. So I'm quite happy with the little rowing machine that we have. We also have one of those sort of weight machines that has all these different levers that strengthen different muscles, and you can move this little clip to determine how many weights you are lifting. Is it called a CrossFit machine? Maybe that's what it's called. And you lift the weights, essentially. So um, you can strengthen. There's a bar way above you that you can pull from above to strengthen those muscles. There's ones that strengthen your kind of upper arms, a leg one. And when you use that thing, as you gradually increase the weights, that's really good. And it has certainly helped me get back into shape as I've been on this kind of low-carb, meditation, fitness-based journey. And I just feel so fantastic for doing it. We also have a treadmill. It's a My Run Techno Gym treadmill, and it's not cheap. I got it because it had a really good iPad app. The iPad app has not proven as intuitive to me. I don't know whether inaccessible is the wrong word in this case. It certainly isn't. If it's accessible, it's not accessible in a way that I personally find that intuitive. But it is a good treadmill, and there are probably other options that are out there now that can offer you uh, connectivity between your watch or your smartphone or a smart device. But it is kind of cool. You can set up a program with this TechnoGym MyRun treadmill that takes you through a sequence. So it warms you up, gradually it speeds you up. And of course, research keeps coming in on the many benefits of interval training, where you go just absolutely as crazily fast as you possibly can for a quite short period. And then you slow back down and you do it again And that has all sorts of known benefits. And so you can set programs up to do interval training like that on the TechnoGym MyRun app. So we do that. And we also have an exercise bike. So we've got quite a bit of gear. We currently have a lot of that gear, with the exception of the treadmill, in our garage, which we turned into a makeshift gym. And we have a sauna in there as well, which is also great for weight loss and detoxification. It's an infrared sauna. But we have, to some degree, got empty nest syndrome now. You know, the kids are growing up, and it's highly unlikely that there would ever be a situation, given that two of our children actually live not too far from us, that we would have all the kids sleeping at Mosin Towers at the same time now. So we've decided that we're going to empty out one of the bedrooms, and we're going to turn that bedroom into a gym, which will be much better than going to the garage, which is not lined. I mean, it connects to the house, But it's not lined. It can be a bit cold in the wintertime. And I think there's even a better incentive to use it if you have a room in the house dedicated to this. So that's going to be our dedicated gymnasium. And we have that. We're selling some of the furniture in there at the moment, actually, to create our custom gym. But I tell you what, when you actually get into this stuff, you just feel so much better for it. I mean, not only are you better toned and losing weight and all those kinds of things. But actually, for me, at least, it affects your mood in a really positive way. All the endorphins being released. So if people would like to talk about exercise equipment they have, particularly perhaps from an accessibility point of view, because some of these things are touchscreen based now and they can be quite difficult to operate. So if you've got stuff with good old fashioned buttons and knobs or that integrate with your Apple Watch or your smartphone, then I'd love to hear 
about that. If you have specific brand names and model numbers, then please do share that. And I apologize. I'll try and report back on those as well myself. I need to call Ira or something and be reminded of the models. Mosin at Large Podcast. Tweets from Peggy Kern. She says, if the risks involved in the surgery, this is with respect to the bionic implant, were low, I think I'd go for the bionic eye just for fun. For me, playing with sight and seeing how it works would be like playing with a new app on my phone. I had a tiny bit of sight in one eye until I was about eight, not enough to read print. I was an ROP baby. That's an interesting perspective, Peggy. And I think that probably reflects your attitude to life in general. I mean, you were a very good patient, weren't you, when you had your hip replacement done and you just sort of got on with it. A lot of people kind of whine about that, but um, you didn't. And um, it was very effective. Louise Redsell is tweeting in and she says, in the UK, the BBC showed a drama about a lady whose sight was restored after 20 years and showed how she struggled as her husband had aged and she'd never seen her kids. It was very interesting. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? What if you have this memory locked in your mind's eye of your significant other and then you start to see again and they haven't aged well? (laughs) We've had a few questions about Microsoft Edge coming in, people asking why don't certain things work. What I found is an okay strategy is to get on the test flight build of Microsoft Edge on your phone, and that will give you builds that haven't officially been released, but I haven't found them particularly dodgy or unstable, and you do get some good features that way. So uh, try and do that. I forget how you do it, but I think it's pretty public. If you search for Microsoft Edge test iOS or something, it'll probably come up. You can join that build via test flight and get regular updates and you get the latest features. Similarly, I'm running the Microsoft Edge developer builds on my Windows machine without any trouble at all. And they tend to have the latest and greatest, particularly in terms of accessibility features. Caroline, uh, that's Caroline Taves, is saying, my only real complaint with Edge, and Chrome for that matter, is that if you have multiple pages open in the same window and you hit the Alt F4, oh, look at this, promotion of keyboard abuse right here on Mosin at Large. If you hit Alt F4 to close it, it closes all the pages without asking you. So if you forget there's more than one page open, they all go away. See, I am a notorious app closer. And I think this probably stems from just being around technology for too long and being mindful of, you know, in in days of yore, if you didn't close apps that you weren't using, your computer got really sluggish. So you sort of get into the habit of doing it. But what I invariably find, even if I do close apps that I intended to close, for example, something in Edge, I wish I'd just left it open. So I'm trying to wean myself out of the habit of closing apps. One of the things that I really do like is the keyboard commands, the windows and the number keys that allow you to whisk around the taskbar. That is super efficient if you get used to using it. Email from Julie McCullough. Julie says, hi, Jonathan. I'm not sure what I would do. I would like to experience the colors and the seeing of what family and friends look like that sighted people enjoy so much. But I wonder if the part of my brain that controls sight is even alive. I am blind because my optic nerve didn't develop. So I imagine that my brain would have to do a lot of rewiring for me to see if that could even happen. Having sight might make me crazy. 
if I couldn't figure out a systematic way to adjust to it. If there were societal or governmental pressure to get this bionic eye, would they take into account what might happen with people for whom the problem was the connection between the eyes and the brain? Thank you for doing such a wonderful, well-thought-out, humorous, and compassionate show. I deeply appreciate your advocacy and concern. Thank you so much, Julie. Roger Peterson, hello to you. Jonathan, he says, I almost got a PhD in experimental uh, psychology, specializing in the senses. Sight is much more complicated than hearing. And we know more about vision than we do about hearing. So if they can't make cochlear implants sound like real hearing, why should we imagine that artificial vision would work any better? Even if you could get a perfect eye, you still have a brain that developed without vision, which is a large part of the cerebral cortex. Do you know, he continues, about the deaf politics involved in whether to automatically give deaf babies cochlear implants? The parents, who are often deaf, tend to say no. Yes, I am aware of that, Roger. Um, I find that a really interesting discussion because with the deaf culture, which is something actually I have a lot of respect and admiration for, they don't view deafness as a disability. And so they view... I guess uh, giving someone a cochlear implant, much like, say, someone who's African-American might view some procedure that made you white. You know, they see it as a sort of a an insult. Or, you know, it, it's, an, it's, a, it's a very interesting and I accept many people would say radical way to think. I think the question's a bit different with any impairment. This is a very deeply held philosophical view that people have. And I respect the passion that people have on this. But if... I had blind children, I would not, I mean, I would welcome that. I would embrace it. And in some ways, I'd be quite excited about having blind children. And I've gotten into trouble for saying this in the past. I really would. I would. I think I'd have a special bond with a child of mine that happened to be blind and the things that I could teach them, and, and it would be wonderful. However, if somebody said, without any risk at all, we can, if you act in the, say, the first four weeks or, or eight weeks or whatever of, of, a, of your child's life, we could give them sight. I would not stand in the way of that because I think it is easier to live life without the discrimination, without the accessibility barriers. Uh, but, but that's a fascinating area. Hello from Linda. She says, I never had vision and I'm over 65, but I would be quite tempted to try out the bionic eye depending upon the risks. However, I doubt that will be offered to those who have never had eyesight. And I definitely realize how hard the adjustment would be. I do recall that Oliver Sacks book, and I believe the patient, who was a woman, never adjusted well to having eyesight. As I sit here contemplating what a nightmare it would be if one couldn't cope or learn to discriminate among all the stimuli but then how intriguing it would be if the bionic eye opened up new avenues. I am glad I live now with all the tech available, but I wouldn't mind the ability to see and possibly accomplish tasks more comfortably. Here's Steve Catway. In 1970, my introductory psychology course textbook contained a case study of a man whose sight was restored at the age of 51. He committed suicide six months later. 
I've heard about the possibility of bionic eyes for 30 or 40 years, if not longer, and I'm sceptical. They might well work to ameliorate some forms of blindness, but they won't work for all conditions, including mine, retinopathy of prematurity. What's more, even if they are perfected, I doubt I'll be around to see it. About that self-driving car, while I'll be in line with you, I think you have a much better chance of realising our dream than I do, and I don't think the biggest obstacle will be the technology itself. Rather, it will be societal attitudes that will oppose the idea in spades. Well, I think that's right, and there are also some pretty difficult, challenging questions around self-driving cars. And the biggest one that I can think of is the fact that these things are computers, so they're going to be programmed to make judgments. Let's say, for example, that you are in your self-driving car and a child, let's say he's a four-year-old boy, he runs out in front of the car and the car knows in good time exactly what's going to happen. And the car, because it's a computer, can make two choices. It can choose to swerve, save the child's life, but in the process, perhaps tip you over a ravine or, 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 or whack you into another vehicle or some object, some obstacle that's going to kill you. The self-driving car will decide, will actually make a calculated decision about who to save. Hello, Jonathan and fellow listeners of the Mosin at Large podcast. This is Daryl Hilliker here. I wanted to talk about the concept of a portless iPhone. Yes, I think it will be a reality, uh, just not now. I think it's kind of like the headphone jack rumors we had been hearing for years before the headphone jack went away, kind of as you mentioned. Uh, I, I think it is coming I can't imagine it coming in the 2021 iPhone, however. Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. So reason number one is, as you say, wireless charging just isn't there yet. There's not enough power to really charge an iPhone wirelessly in a timely manner. I think the thing that people like about wireless charging is you can get a little bit of power uh, in a short time, but it's not it's not going to put your iPhone up to 100% in a short amount of time. But, you know, if you're in an emergency situation and you go to a place where they have those wireless charging stands, you can stick your iPhone on there for a little while while you're shopping or doing whatever it is you're doing. And then uh, when you leave the store, you know, or the, the whatever the business is, or your home, if you have this wireless charger on your nightstand, you're good to go. With wireless, you either just need a little bit of power or if you need a lot of power, you can charge it overnight. So wireless isn't ready for charging. Uh, but number two, although Bluetooth 5 is out, uh, in, and supposedly Bluetooth 5 has a lot more bandwidth than did Bluetooth 4, I just don't think it's there yet. I don't think there's enough bandwidth. You can connect all kinds of things to a port, and you know, including camera kits to transfer data and all kinds of things that you can transfer video, you know, some pretty high intensity, uh, high bandwidth content uh, over that hardwired connection. 
that I'm just not sure even Bluetooth 5 or Wi-Fi 6 uh, would be up for doing just yet. Even though Bluetooth, I believe, now has encryption, there might also still be security issues. Bluetooth just doesn't have the obvious level of security that a wired connection would have. Even with Bluetooth 5 and Wi-Fi 6, I could see a lot of enterprise level customers having a big problem with that setup, uh, with that portless setup. I just don't think the world is ready yet. And oh, by the way, let's see, I'm looking at my iPhone 11 now. It's an 11, not a pro, but I only see one port, the lightning port. So, you know, we're almost there, really. I don't, I'm not sure what the big deal is. We're almost portless as it is. We have one port and it would make no sense to go with a, quote, smart connector, in quote, because it's not portless then. You can't call it portless. It has a port. If that's a smart connector, that's still a port. Yeah, Jonathan, I'm with you. Let's go Let's go USB-C and be done with it. I'd like to see Apple joining the rest of the world. After all, they already have. The iPad Pros are already USB-C. I saw someone's iPad Pro last year, and I had forgotten that. I'm like, wait a minute. I cannot plug a pair of Lightning headphones into that thing. That's USB-C. So uh, it, they're already going there. I'm not sure why we don't just... Uh, move that along and start putting it in iPhones. Uh, so maybe that will actually be the next step in the 2021 iPhones is USB-C connectivity. Thank you, Daryl. Well, later this year, we are going to see a good number of new iPhones out there. And of course, these will be the first with 5G, but I believe there will be a greater range in the model. I suspect Steve Jobs would not have been happy about this. He was always for a simple, clearly defined product range. But I think we will see more in this iPhone Pro category. So we've talked about three options so far in this discussion. We've talked about Apple producing a portless iPhone and not producing a portless iPhone or producing a new iPhone that has a smart connector. And I agree with you. I think that's highly unlikely. You get all sorts of Apple rumors in this game. And you have to know which ones to take seriously. I think a portless iPhone may well be on the horizon, but one with a smart connector makes no sense because it just inconveniences people for no real benefit at all. One other possibility we haven't thought about yet or discussed here on this podcast anyway is what if the pro range of iPhones in 2021 goes to USB-C to be consistent with the iPad and for that matter, the Mac? And the non-pro iPhones, the sort of consumer-grade iPhones, are portless. And I think that's another possibility as well that we may be considering. But even then, I tend to agree with you. I think 2021 would be too early. That said, you know, Apple has been known to push the envelope on these things before. So we'll just have to see. It's a big week coming up for Sonos. If you're not familiar with Sonos, this is the amazing audio technology that is multi-room. It's been around a long time. There are others in the wireless speaker space now, many. But Sonos really started us off and got it to a consumer level. They do very clever tech, and it also is good-sounding tech. They spend a lot of time on getting their speakers sounding very good. And Sonos had a real PR disaster a while ago. They came out with a media release that was ambiguous, it was confusing, and it said that some of the older Sonos speakers were going to be deprecated. This caused some consternation among the audiophiles, because 
Some audiophiles have got speakers they've had for 20, 30, 40 years, and they sound brilliant. Of course, what Sonos didn't really do a good job of explaining was that Sonos is a fusion of computer technology and audio technology, and computer technology becomes obsolete much quicker than audio technology does. Sonos wants to move the platform forward, so they've been working for a while on a new operating system for the platform called S2. And you can go to a page on Sonos's website, and they'll tell you whether any of the products you have are not compatible with the S2 operating system for Sonos. We actually don't have any. We've got Play 1s, Play 3s, Play 5s, the new 1s, a Play Base for now, and a Sub, and a Connect. Uh, no, it's been replaced now. What, about, what do they call that? A port, a Sonos port we have now, which is the updated version of Connect. But anyway, all of our stuff, even the stuff we bought when we got into Sonos back in 2016, largely thanks to listeners, actually, and Gordon Luke. Well, he's a listener sometimes as well. All of that stuff is compatible with Sonos S2, so we are very fortunate. We are grateful for that. There will be several new features available immediately, I understand, when Sonos S2 comes out, and there are two parts to this process. The first thing is that you will need to download the app, the new Sonos S2 app, and that's just going to be called Sonos in the App Store. The older app will still be available for S1 systems, which is uh, what we're all running now, and you'll be able to get that as the Sonos S1 app. As a result of all of the argy-bargy Sonos generated for itself, they've now got this kind of multi-pronged approach or this dual approach where if you have S1 devices, you can download that S1 app and you can still use them in their own little Sonos ecosystem. But S1 and S2 devices won't be able to talk to each other. So if you do have some older Sonos products and some newer ones, you might be able to set things up so that you can still use those older products with one app and use the newer products with another. Good excuse to update if you have the ability to do that. And of course, not everybody does. So the big factor after you download the app is, is it going to be accessible? Well, I have done a little bit of reaching out. I have to say I cannot vouch for this information personally. I got off the Sonos beta team a while ago with some regret because we just use Sonos so extensively in the house that when we get lots of bugs, I kind of hear about it. You know, I hear about it. So I'm off the beta group now. But I am advised that the Sonos S2 app, from an accessibility point of view, at least on iOS, is in very good shape. So you should feel confident, I believe, in downloading that app, when you do that, you'll upgrade all of the Sonos products to the new operating system. So depending on how many you have, that could take a while, and then you'll be good to go. One of the things I understand you will notice immediately is that you can create saved room groups, which will be a very welcome feature. I'm sure there'll be some other little changes people are saying it's easier to use. Uh, it's cited people that have said that. Hopefully that also applies from an accessibility point of view. Although I really like the most recent version of the Sonos app with its tab strip at the bottom and that kind of thing. So we'll see how it goes. And if you do get the new Sonos S2 app and operating system, then let me know how you're getting on with it and what you think of it. The app is expected to drop, and the OS with it, of course, on the 8th of June. That'll be US time, so if you're in the Southern Hemisphere like me, you should probably expect it on Tuesday morning, the 9th of June. That has to be the case, because on the 10th of June, it is a very big day for Sonos when they release the new Sonos Arc. My Arc is on order, 
It's not going to get here on the 10th, apparently. They're suggesting it'll get here on the 17th. So I'm looking forward to that, and we may well see if we can get the Zoom F6 in the living room and record the setup of that Sonos Arc. So it is going to be essential that that app drop so that everybody who gets their Sonos Arc can actually use the thing, right? Because the Sonos Arc is an exclusively S2 product. So I'm pretty sure that there will be no slippage, that we will get this Sonos app, the new one, in the early part of the coming week. So uh, I'm looking forward to the arc. The reviews are very positive and largely mirror the comments that I made here when we learned about the arc. Some people are lamenting the fact that there is no HDMI pass-through port, but they are acknowledging that one of the beauties of Sonos has always been simplicity. But people are saying the sound is really great. The Dolby Atmos, which sort of fires sound up towards the ceiling. So it sounds like audio is coming from overhead, is surprisingly effective, they are saying, and that Sonos has done quite well with the audio component, the audio part of this package. And if you do what we're doing and combine it with a Sonos sub and a couple of rear surrounds, we are being promised a really amazing experience, significantly upgraded from the Sonos Play Bar which is what we have now. So I know we have quite a lot of Sonos enthusiasts in the blind community. I'm really keen to hear how you get on with the Sonos S2 operating system and app when they drop next week. Hello there, Jonathan. It's Dean Calder here from Melbourne, Australia. We had a Cocker Spaniel. For around about 13 years, we had her, and uh, she uh, certainly was a, was a real character and had a really friendly sort of personality. Now, something she did, which was quite extraordinary, she ate uh, a dozen minced tarts, which, uh, you know, was quite uh, a lot, you know, to, to eat because we, we had them out one day for her, and she, you know, ate all those and, and was absolutely fine. Now... Getting to guide dog stories, uh, I've had two guide dogs. My first guide dog, Phoenix, I worked him for, for seven years. And uh, something he did, which was quite funny, when I started working at my current job, I used to have a mat for Phoenix to lie on. And uh, he got up off his mat one day and a work colleague saw this happen and she told him to get on his mat and he... Uh, his reply to her was to give her a snort as much as to say, who the hell do you think you are telling me uh, what to do? Um, so I thought that was quite funny. Love the show. Love the podcast. Keep up the great work. The Samsung Galaxy range is popular with everyone and blind people in particular, I think, because they have introduced some blindness specific features on the platform, including a screen reader called Voice Assistant, which has gotten around this horrible lack of multi-touch that pervades Android. And that'll end, of course, in Android 11 when multi-touch for accessibility finally comes to the platform. So I was intrigued recently to see some PR from Samsung that says that Samsung is offering a slew Love that word. A slew of features on its Bixby Vision platform for the visually impaired. These are accessible via the Samsung phone camera by activating Bixby. And at least on the Galaxy phone that I had, what was that? The the S8, I think? There was a dedicated Bixby button. I presume that is still a thing, but I don't know for sure. The blurb from Samsung says, and I quote, the new accessibility features, namely Quick Reader, Scene Describer, 
and color detector build on this capability to help users with visual impairments navigate the world and enjoy more enriching experiences. Gotta love that marketing stuff. These features do sound self-explanatory, but to go on, it says using Quick Reader, users can use the phone to read out any text written in front of them in real time. So if they want to read a message or letter, the phone will help them do that. The company says it can recognize over 1,000 common objects and items like food and vegetables in the kitchen. So based on that, it sounds like they might have integrated a barcode reader in there too. So it's almost like they've integrated a lot of the key seeing AI features right into Bixby. And just illustrating that, the next one they talk about is Scene Describer, which describes what's in front of the user. It can help the user understand details in a photo. Also help identify potential obstacles when they're navigating their surroundings. And finally, there is the Color Detector. It says it's hard for visually impaired people to recognize colors by touching an item. This is where the Color Detector helps them scan the objects, via the camera and tell the color of that shirt or shoe. So that's a great initiative. Congratulations to Samsung for including these right in Bixby. And if you have a Samsung device and these features are available to you, let us know how they work. Even better, if you're in a position to, give us a demo. We would love that. Drop me an email, jonathan at mushroomfm.com and attach an audio clip if you have a demo for us. It's Mosin at Large, the show that is about to take the P-Star SS. <laughs> now, this one is a story that would be right at home in one of those NFB addresses where they come up with all sorts of ideas that have been thought of by undoubtedly well-intentioned people, but they've put these ideas together with very little consultation with blind people or with independent blind people. And this story is a classic example of the old adage in the disability sector Nothing about us without us, because if there had been any reasonable co-design in this project, I don't think it would ever have come to fruition. Now, this comes from a design publication that talks about innovative new things that have been designed. And it says, if you tie a blindfold and walk around as an exercise, maybe some parts of your house are the only places you can confidently navigate. The exercise is just a small way to feel a fraction of what visually impaired people might be feeling. They are constantly reliant on those around them, even for small things like going to a public restroom. So a designer reimagined a basic facility, the urinal, to be made in a way that they can have some independence. Wow, all these years, eh? And of course it goes on privacy when they use the bathroom. This particular design revolves around the common urinals for men that you find in malls, movie theatres, schools and most other public places because that situation is trickier than being in a restaurant. Right. There are 37 million people across the globe who suffer from some kind of visual impairment. Or perhaps they suffer from this sort of language. Anyway, while there are various organizations that help train such people to be independent, there are some places, like a public restroom, where they would require extra care. Sutha, I presume that's the name of the designer, observed that visually impaired people have no interaction with the products in the restroom, which leaves them fumbling. This redesign is created around using sound as a guide to identify and position oneself in front of the urinals. Here's a quote. 
I kept their ability to sense around and tactility in three-dimensional space, says Sutha, on the choice of using sound as a guiding force. The designer understood that finding their way around the restroom was still doable, but finding products was harder. The users navigate through the tactile mobility system on the floor with special tiles, which can also be used to map out other areas of the restroom. Each urinal is in front of a stop tile, so when the user steps on one of these tiles, the sensors pick it up and a sound lets the user know they are in front of the urinal. There are two more stop tiles near the urinal, so when the user is close enough, the sound will buzz again to let them know they are precisely positioned. If the sound system gets compromised, there are guide rails in the stalls to help. Occupied urinals will make a different sound to let the user know when they are crossing. The sensors activate the flush once the user steps back and there is another sound buzz. Inclusive designs help make the world a better place and this urinal will make life easier for millions of people. The use of sound to answer nature's call is just brilliant in a metaphorical way too. Gosh, I wonder how I've ever been able to take a leak in public all these years without this amazing device. I know that the designer obviously meant well, but wouldn't it have been good to do just a little bit of market research and actually find out whether we need this thing? Then he wouldn't have needed to spend so many pennies getting this thing organized. Hello, Jonathan, and hello to the other listeners of the Mosin at Large podcast. This is Lachlan Thomas. I'm in Melbourne, Australia, and I wanted to contribute to the podcast in relation to episode number 38. I wanted to demonstrate a couple of talking clocks that I have. The first one I want to demonstrate is a very old clock that was given to me by a relative in around 1994. Now, he bought this clock, I think, in 1991. Certainly, he first showed it to me in 1991. Um, the clock is square in shape, and it has a cover that you can lift up on the front that exposes the controls. The clock has no maker name on it, and no model name on it. There's really no information about the clock. The only thing I know about it is that it was made in Taiwan. And I know this because there's a note on the battery cover that says as much. This talking clock uses a voice chip that I think was quite common in other clocks. A good friend of mine, in fact my best friend, had a pyramid-shaped talking alarm clock that had the same voice as this clock I'm about to show you. And if you want to know what the voice sounds like, this is what it sounds like. It's 8.55pm. The button that you press to announce the time is not working terribly well, so I have to press it multiple times to get it to speak. Jonathan, I think you mentioned that... Your brother had a pyramid-shaped talking clock, and you said it had a pretty dreadful voice. I'm wondering if his clock had the same voice chip as my clock does. This clock does have a rooster crow and a beep alarm sound. It's, it's, That's what the rooster crow sounds like. 
The clock has an hourly report function, which I do use. I actually use this clock to this very day in my kitchen. It sits on top of my fridge. And it announces the time every hour, much to the annoyance of my younger brother, who lives with me. The next clock I want to show you is a, a Radio Shack UFO clock, and it's shaped like, well, a flying saucer. It has a button on the top that you press to announce the time, and on the bottom of the clock, you have the battery compartment, the display, and three buttons that you use to set the time and the alarm. I haven't used this clock in several years, so I've just put batteries in it just for the purposes of demonstrating it to you. And this is what the rooster crow sounds like. That was given to me for my 13th birthday, I think. Now, the next talking clock I want to show you is a Voicer MT10 clock. This is a pyramid clock. It's not like the pyramid clock that my best friend had that had the voice chip that my clock I demonstrated to you earlier has. The pyramid clock my friend had had the buttons and the display on the bottom of the clock. So when you stood the clock up as you normally would, the display was not visible. It was underneath the clock near the battery compartment. So you had to hold the clock upside down to read the display and access the buttons or stand it up on its side. The Voicer MT10 Pyramid Clock has the buttons and the display on the, the front face of the pyramid, if you like. It is a fairly standard clock. And you just heard it, actually. That was the Voicer MT10 clock going off. It is a clock that I bought in, I think, late 1997. And I used it for a long time, although I haven't used it much recently. And that's basically it. It sounds like this. The alarm sound sounds like this. I've also had a couple of wristwatches that have the same voice chip as found in the Radio Shack UFO talking clock. I don't have them anymore. I have a couple of other talking clocks, but I won't be demonstrating them, mainly because there's one I have that does not work at all, and I don't have batteries for the other ones. I have one particular talking clock that actually has some really nice features. It does have a large display screen that shows the current date, although the clock doesn't really announce the date in an audible fashion, so that particular part of the clock isn't terribly usable by someone who's totally blind. The clock also tells you the current room temperature, and it plays music. It has a music function where it plays, I think, about 15 or 16 different melodies. Um, the melodies sound like an early video game system, like the say, the Nintendo Entertainment System or Sega Master System. The music is like that square wave synthesized type sound. Laurel Jean Walden is chiming in on three of our topics. She says, Hi, Jonathan. I have been blind from birth and would not opt for a bionic eye implant. As an avid user of Braille and the long white... Oh, by the way, Braille's got a capital B. Good on you. And the long white cane... 
I have always embraced my literacy and independence with great enthusiasm. My life is extremely busy and fulfilling. While blindness doesn't identify me, the blindness perspective is so deeply ingrained in me personally that I simply have no desire to be sighted. Though I have never used a guide dog, I have always had pets. My grandfather raised and trained border collies and hunting dogs. By his example, I trained my childhood pet Dachshund, I think that's how you say it, isn't it? Dachshund and Dalmatian in basic obedience. None of my dogs have been afraid of my cane, and I have had no problems walking them. My current dog is a yellow lab named Sunny. I adopted him several years ago from a sighted lady who could no longer handle him and wanted, quote, to give him to a blind person, unquote. When he came to me, the little guy weighed 65 pounds, had never walked on a leash, and had apparently never heard the word no. <laughs> Soon after he came to live with me, my sonny, sonny, was also diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease, a variety of allergies, and other problems. We are blessed to have wonderful vets, and I have since become very well read on Sonny's issues. Sonny and I walk between two and three miles a day. I use my cane and keep him on a leash beside me. As much as I try to explain to sighted people that he's just my pet, many still try to make a guide dog out of him. One day when he was particularly rambunctious, a lady stopped and rolled down her window as she passed us on the street and exclaimed, Oh, aren't they a blessing? I want my brother to have one of those. He's like you. There I was trying to keep Sonny, who is so not a guide dog, from leaping into this lady's lap via her car window, all the while trying to process what she was saying. As I was explaining that he is my pet, she reiterated, what a blessing he was, closed her window and drove away. It's good to be able to laugh about that now, and I am grateful that my guide dog handler friends have such wonderful senses of humour. I'd be interested to know if any other cane users walk or hike with their pet dogs, as I do with mine, says Laurel. Of course, I have always familiarised myself with a particular route before adding a dog into the mix, and I always take my phone with me. Speaking of phones, this is the third topic, I am not ready to purchase an iPhone that has no ports. Thanks for all you do to keep us connected and smiling, especially during these troubling times. Best wishes to you, Bonnie and all. Thank you so much, Laurel. Uh, the Bonnie Bulletin is back again. Hello. Welcome, Bonnie. Good morning, everyone, and afternoon, evening, wherever you are. Well, that covers all the bases. Yeah, it does, yeah. You are starting to talk like your text-to-speech engine. I am. A lot of us do this. Yesterday, we were talking about a new Braille display, and you said to me, oh, that's Have right. you heard about this new Braille <laughs> display from F? Uh, what? And then I realized you were talking about APH. I know. I don't your, know why it your, didn't hit. Your what? synthesizer is saying app. 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 It sounded like it said app. Hmm. App. Interesting. Yeah. I was like, what was that? And, and like, oh, APH. The, if I'd seen it with my – it was on my phone, so it was voiceover that did it. I, I blame voiceover. I yeah. do remember when I started going to ATIA 
And I said to Russell Smith, (laughs) I'm just going to book my travel for Asia. And he said, what? And I said, for Asia? And he said, you mean ATIA? I said, oh. My screen reader, my, my, my text to speech says Asia. 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 Yeah. Asia. Well, why can't they call it Asia? Well, I mean, NASA calls it's it, an acronym. I know, but you don't go around calling NASA NASA. You call it NASA. Well, I don't know. You could ask them if you like. Okay. Yeah. What's happening? You've got any reactions to all the discussions we've been having here? I guess the big one is the whole bionic eye thing. Because you've had some vision. I have, yeah. I had quite a bit of vision until I was eight. And if your visual cortex, because the eye is one of the most, no, not one of the most, it is the most complicated organ in your body. You don't, you think about it as this little round ball that sits in a socket and is whirls around, but it's not. I mean, it's technically part of the brain, which is the computer that drives the, the whole body. And there's so much in the eye with the, you were talking about the 500 million receptors. I mean, that's a lot in one little place. But if your visual cortex has not developed, it doesn't matter how good the device is, you're not going to see because your brain can't, your brain's just not going to be able to handle it. And a lot of sighted people, they think it's as easy and maybe some blind people too think it's as easy as, oh, if you got a new eye, you would see, but you would have to learn. You would have to learn the same thing that you did if you lost your vision, but without that visual cortex development, I don't know that you could ever see if you'd, if you'd never had vision before. And we did have a question come in, why don't you just close your eyes when you want to function again as a blind person? But what people don't understand is that closing your eyes isn't the same as not having sight. No, not at all. And one thing that they never told me when I lost my vision, I didn't learn this till years later. I, they, I don't know if they told my parents. I don't know if they knew what it was at that time. But when you lose your vision, you can still see things it's called Charles Bonnet syndrome. And it's uh, part of – Is that with phantom limbs too, that yes, kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, I yeah. don't know if they call it the same thing. And pe- people who have hearing loss sort of hear this weird high-frequency mm-hmm. stuff. You know, that's where yeah. tinnitus comes from. But yeah. I probably would do it um, because I had have seen before. So mm-hmm. I probably would if it was safe, and but I, I, I probably would do it. Interesting. What if you decided that I wasn't everything you expected? Well, I'm sure that I would have – that nothing was I had expected because I think it would be quite overwhelming if you saw again. You'd be – Kind of freaked out at first. Isn't it? Isn't it true though that before we sort of officially got together, you you had somebody you trust look over my pick on. Oh, the, of course, that oh, was even before we met. I mean, officially man. met. What's he like? What's he look like? I do that with everybody. So I, 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 I mean, I feel a bit embarrassed about it, and I don't know why. Like, for example, I'm sort of curious about what certain people look like, mm-hmm. but I I'd, I'd still be a bit sort of embarrassed to call Ira and say, describe the way this person looks. I'm not yeah, sure why. I'd be a bit weirded out by that, but I I will ask other people and also um, ira will give you a very factual description yeah. they won't give an opinion they're i mean tall. they won't say oh my goodness she's they'd be like oh my gorgeous. god they're horrible oh, looking or they're gorgeous, beautiful gorgeous. yeah but i i do that with everybody that i meet and sometimes i imagine I what they look like mm. and then you find out what they really look like and they don't look like anything you think they look i get that all the time yeah people think i'm much much taller than i am yeah. So one of the funniest kind of stories to that is uh, a friend of mine who sadly passed on Mike, Ty- Mike I almost said Mike Tyson Mike Townsend but <laughs> he was giving a 
talk to a bunch of AT&T execs about blindness and diversity and whatever. And some man asked him, how did he do his hair? And, and he goes, obviously not the same guy that did yours making a joke. Turned out the guy was completely bald. Oh, man. Yes, that's very – you've got to be careful. And he couldn't even that. see him, but everybody in the room just – you know, die erupted into laughter because oh. it was just the timing was perfect. I tell you, the worst error like that as a blind person I have ever made was when I was standing for parliament and I was asked to go on a TV debate. And the debate was with everybody standing in what we call the electorate. So it's kind of like uh, in Britain, they'd call it a constituency and mm -hmm. in the US, they'd call it a congressional district. So I was on this debate and we were talking about diversity and I was saying how really important it is that the disability perspective is represented, that there was basically no one who was representing that perspective. And I said I also thought it was a real shame that there was no one running for this electorate who was Mari, and oh, everybody no. sort of goes, because <clears throat> one of the guys was, uh -oh. and I had no idea yeah. that he was, because obviously I couldn't see, and I had just made an assumption based on the names oh, that there dear. was no one there. There no Mari so that was a real blindy oh, boy. mess up. Did you apologize to him? Well, I didn't. No one actually told me oh, to after oh, the dear. live thing had finished because they didn't want to. I mean, it was a really <laughs> bad thing to be in because yeah. obviously all the TV audience yeah, were like, like what, what a net. <laughs> no wonder they didn't elect me. Well, thank you so much thank for you. another marvelous Bonnie Bulletin. Cool. See Bye, you next everybody. week. See okay. Bye. Hi, Jonathan. My name is Gary from South Africa. Uh, first time contributor, and I discovered that Jonathan at large. Yesterday, as a matter of fact, and subsequently be downloading podcasts and enjoying them thoroughly. Jonathan, what I'd like to know from you is you are a Abbott Jaws user. I would like to know your views on NVDA. Do you like it? Do you have it as a backup on your system if Jaws fails you? Or would you rather use something like Narrator as a backup? I have heard that Narrator has come leaps and bounds in Windows 10 uh, versus the other Windows. I haven't played around much with it yet. Uh, just your views on it. And then what happened to Window Eyes? Is it still around or has it on the highway of software managed to go? Oh, look at that. He's got the sound effects. Thanks for the great show. I'll be listening as often as I can or if not listening, downloading the podcasts. It's very informative and very, very well put together. Take care. Thank you so much, Gary. And hearing your voice in South Africa reminds me that the cricket season can't come back again. Soon enough, I'm looking forward to it, and I hope you're doing okay in these coronavirus times. It looks like South Africa's keeping it at bay to a considerable degree, so congratulations on that. I do have NVDA. I don't use it very often because I just don't find it sufficient for my needs in terms of configurability, but it's a free tool in the toolbox. And what I do really admire about NVDA is the community around it, the sort of open source collaborative approach of blind people solving their own problems. Of course, you're right, as narrator becomes more capable, it is very cool to just be able to walk up to any computer and have quite reasonable access. Regarding what happened to Window Eyes, well, this is quite a convoluted story in a way. What happened was that GW Micro was eventually acquired by AI Squared, and AI Squared's primary product was ZoomText. ZoomText is to low vision what JAWS is to blindness. And then VFO, as it was called then, now Vespero, acquired AI Squared. So really, I think the idea was to get JAWS and ZoomText under the same umbrella. There would be all sorts of synergies there. 
But Window Ice sort of came along with the acquisition. And eventually, Vespero made the decision to retire Window Eyes. And so there was a lot of publicity around that at the time. And I was working for what was then VFO and had to do the uh, podcast to explain to people what the upgrade arrangements for Window Eyes users was. If you are a fan of uh, the work that uh, Doug Joffrey did, and of course he has made a tremendous contribution to this industry, he's one of the giants, isn't he? So it's good to know that he is not lost, his talents are not lost to the industry, because he's now working with the narrator team at Microsoft, and they have got quite a few people around them at Microsoft now who do know a lot about screen reading. And so I think you can expect Narrator will continue to improve with subsequent versions. I do wonder whether it might be time to decouple Narrator from operating system updates. I think if Narrator is going to really be responsive and advance, perhaps we should get to a point where you can get Narrator updates through Windows Update. And I have no idea whether that's planned or whether it's a thing at the moment. I don't believe that in the past we've got narrator updates through Windows Update, but I do think that's where it has to go so that changes can roll out more quickly beyond the Insider program. Of course, if you want to become a Windows Insider, then you can get narrator updates quite regularly. One of the things I love about this show is that I learn a lot from it. And here's an example, a great message here from Eric. And he says, hi, Jonathan, I've heard a lot of lamenting happening surrounding the struggling to hear a screen reader over a video or audio conference call on Zoom and the like. I've been lucky enough to have a solution to this problem during the entirety of my work from home stint. And I want to pass that info on. I encountered the same problem about a year ago when I started playing Dungeons and Dragons with some friends online and wanting to keep up with the action while also reading up on my character stats. I considered a mixer to solve the problem, but found the number of options and capabilities to be quite vast. It was a strange problem to have. I wanted a simple solution, but the simple solutions didn't do enough to make me happy with a purchase. I suppose I'm high maintenance in that way. Join the club, Eric. I'm sure you, me, and quite a few listeners are. He continues, enter the Steel Series Arctis 5 headset. This over-the-ear headset has a built-in retractable microphone, a physical volume wheel, and mute button on the ear cuff. And perhaps the best feature has a balance knob, which allows you to split your computer's audio into two channels. The Arctis 5 is a wired USB headset with a small balance knob built into the wire at the midway point between the computer and headset. That little knob lets your computer see that you have two dedicated sound cards in the Arctis 5 headset and they are labeled game and chat respectively. The headset is developed for gamers who want to mute their chat while playing a game online or mute their game so they can hear their friends while playing online together. For my purposes, I have my conferences set to come through the game channel and yours to come through my chat channel. If I want to turn down the conference a bit so I can hear jaws, I simply twist the knob slightly and I can hear more jaws than conference for a bit. If Zoom announcements are getting annoying, I can turn the knob the opposite direction and only hear the conference audio without killing JAWS. 
It's a very simple and effective solution, and I have to say, it's been an absolute delight since I purchased it. Also, for anyone worrying about comfort, it comes with an elastic band beneath the hard plastic that wraps around the head to lightly suspend the headphones in place. It sounds weird, but they are incredibly comfortable to wear. Also, for those interested in visuals, you can customize some RGB lights on the headset, which allows them to glow in different colors. I don't have much luck accessing the control panel from SteelSeries, though, so it may be more of a feature that those with some sight get a lot out of. I highly recommend the product. In the US, it retails for around $100. Other models exist as well. For slightly more money, one can purchase the Arctis 7, which is a Bluetooth headset with all of the same functions. Features continue to get better the more money you are willing to spend, of course, so an exploration of the catalogue may be warranted. Still, the Arctis 5 will likely be enough to help a lot of people out of their pickle. And Eric includes an Amazon link for this headset. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Eric. And I'm particularly impressed to hear that a Bluetooth version of this exists because there are plenty of Bluetooth options out there that support multiple devices, but you can only listen to one at a time. So this is really cool. I appreciate you letting us know that the product exists. You still might have a case for a mixer if you want to listen to an iPhone and a computer at the same time. So these solutions are going to work well for you if your two audio sources are on the same device. But a mixer, I think, will be a solution worth considering still if you have two physical devices and you want to hear audio from both of them in one place. Earlier in the show, Caroline talked about closing browsers and all the tabs disappearing and how frustrating it was. And Kathy Ann Murtha does remind us that there is a way around this. Instead of having the browser come back to your default homepage, you can set it up in Preferences and this applies to both Edge and Chrome, to make sure that you just load the previous pages that you had before you closed the browser. So if you prefer to do that, then you can. And of course, you can still use the hotkey to go back to your homepage. So that is actually a really smart idea. Thanks, Kathy Ann. Jonathan Mosin. Oh, that's me. That's me. Mosin at Large Podcast. Hello, Jonathan. This is Brian Borowski. As for exercise equipment, I just have an old rowing machine that I use. And I have an exercise bike, which I've put a couple of generators on, and I run a large car stereo system on it and a number of fans. The fans I don't actually point at me, but if I want more load, I can turn on more fans and things like that. And I measured my output. It's about sort of 230 or 240 watts kind of cruising along on the thing. I usually do about... uh, I think 17 or 18 minutes for three times a week on that. And then I do rowing machine and things of that sort. So that's what I do for my exercising. Look at you go. Thank you, Brian. Good to hear your voice. And it is a preferable thing, at least for me, to have this gear at home rather than go to a gym. I mean, there are benefits of going to the gym in terms of they hire the latest and greatest and you just pay a subscription But I find gyms pretty challenging environments. I think perhaps because of my hearing impairment, in addition to blindness, you can be walking around trying to find the thing and get a foot in your face or something if somebody's doing some crazy thing and they're annoyed with you and you're annoyed with them. And also some of the gear 
isn't necessarily accessible either with touchscreens. That's why I've been so intrigued by the Apple Watch interface that lets you walk up to gear and control it. But I've not actually seen that in action. So carefully picking just a small selection of fitness gear so it's accessible and it works for you and you have it at home seems very attractive to me. Hi, Jonathan. It's Maria. I, too, was born blind in my cases because of a retinopathy of prematurity and like you I personally would absolutely not take the chance to see if I were given it first I'm definitely thankful and grateful for the journey that it's led me on in life and for the perspective that it's given me and how I perceive things with different senses and so I would not want to change that but also in a book that I read a few years back uh, called For the Benefit of Those Who See by Rosemarie Mahoney. And it's primarily about her own journey and discovering that some of the stereotypes and misperceptions that she held about the blind completely were inaccurate by meeting and interacting with uh, blind people in, in a couple of countries. But she also talks about uh, some of the history surrounding the blind uh, more from a Western perspective. Uh, but one of the chapters in her book is about this scenario of people who were born blind uh, regaining their sight. And a lot of the cases talk about the first initial experiences, but there's one uh, story that goes longer. And then she does actually mention the case of uh, Mike May, uh, who I think had a, a corneal issue and got some of his sight restored. And it seems like the takeaway from that is even after months to a year, it's just this exhausting process. You know, these people couldn't recognize objects very well or faces without touching them first or without hearing the voices behind the faces. The depth perception and spatial ability wasn't particularly there. Uh, couldn't really recognize shapes. And these people just really had to very consciously think about what they were seeing and in a lot of cases, uh, you know, touch it or, or learn about it with their other senses in order to identify what it was that they were seeing. Um, and I think in the case of Mike May, I, I think he continues to be a guide dog user and such and use non-visual um, techniques. The other aspect of it was that, you know, some people were quite disappointed of things in the world, you know, they didn't live up to their imagination and their expectations and such. And so she was making the point in the book that this is because uh, the neural pathways in our brains, those who've been congenitally blind, have rewired themselves and we haven't had that opportunity to develop the visual ability. And so uh, it just isn't, uh, it seems terribly effective if we then regain that, you know, biological aspect. Um, and so it just sounds very exhausting and not too uh, useful <laughs> from what I've read. And and just, you know, I have heard this about the visual cortex being uh, rewired to process taking in information by touch. And also a neurologist that I've heard talk about this, she's uh, seen MRIs of different, you know, brains of people who are congenitally blind and um, how things, you know, light up with the performance of different tasks. And she said that she's noticed that the uh, rewiring is 
depending on the person, there might be more real estate devoted to things like hearing or memory and such to, you know, compensate so the brain isn't sitting still. And I am quite happy with the uh, rewiring, whatever that happens to be that my brain has uh, taken. So I would not uh, take that opportunity if it were given to me. As for my Lacey Lou, uh, which story to tell you? So we had a in my MBA, there was a mergers and acquisitions course, and the final project was where uh, students had to pitch a potential deal that they'd researched, and the class was like the board, and they were supposed to critique. And so it's the last project, it finishes, maybe there are less than five minutes left of class, they're done, and the professor says to one student, so what did you think? Would you go for this deal? And the student is quite hesitating, and he goes, I, well, I suppose that it was fine. And once he said fine, my very, usually very quiet in harness, you don't even know she's there, Lacey, lets out two very loud, sharp barks. And I burst out laughing, as did the rest of the class. It was just so unexpected and surprising. I, I couldn't even correct her or anything. I was laughing. And the best part, the professor goes, Well, clearly Lacey disagrees with you. Strong finish, Lacey. No more questions had to be answered. The presenters, they didn't have to, you know, answer any more questions. And so she completely sabotaged the end of class, but in a good way. So life is definitely an adventure with doggies. Just before we go, a bit of a light note. First of all, Gary Hoff says that he would like to try the bionic eye, kind of like trying an app to see what it's like. And you, I guess you can delete the app if you don't like it. I'm not sure if it's going to be quite that simple to get rid of the eyeball if you don't like it. But yes, I get the point. You sort of, it's, it's tantalizing, isn't it? But the light note I refer to is this in terms of dog stories that we've been telling today. He was lost, as we often are, right? He was lost. He asked a random guy, just stopped a random guy and asked them for directions. The guy knelt down, started whispering into the guide dog's ear giving the guide dog directions. Oh, brother. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a US number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin.